Okay. All right, so uh, I want to start off this morning with a question, and I can't take credit for this question. It is actually a quote from Al Michaels, and he quoted it, or he said the quote on February 22nd, 1980 in Lake Placid, New York, as the USA men's hockey team unbelievably beat the Soviet hockey team for the first time in many years, and in fact, they had just been beat a couple weeks back by 10 goals by the Soviet Union. And as the seconds are counting down and the USA is winning, Al Michaels says, Do you believe in miracles? And that's the question I want to pose to you. Do you believe in miracles? And while Al Michaels was talking about a hockey game, and that hockey game was not truly a miracle in that uh, it didn't go against the natural order of things, okay? It was possible for that to happen. It was possible, even though they were a bunch of young college kids on the USA to come out, it was possible for them to come out and beat the Soviets, and they did. So what I'm asking you when I ask, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in the divine intervention in everyday life? Do you believe that that happens? I want to say that you probably do because there was a quote Uh, or excuse me, a poll done by NPR in 2010, and it found that 80% of Americans believe that miracles happen. So I can only imagine that in a church, even accounting for our skeptical Bostonian attitude, that you probably do in some way uh, or another believe that miracles happen. Uh, And we are going to see two stories of that today, where we see the divine come down into everyday life and change something that should not be able to change. We see something impossible happen. The first story takes place at a wedding, and it is in John chapter 2. And we're going to read the first five verses to start. John 2, chapter 1, or excuse me, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So here is Jesus at a wedding. He's there with his disciples. He's there with his mother. And weddings like now are a big deal back then, too. I think we can certainly attest in all our culture. I have three uh, co-workers who are getting ready to be married, and it consumes them all hours of the day. A wedding is a big deal. There's the venue, the preacher, uh, the marriage license, the dresses, the tuxedos. All of that goes into this. And in case you haven't been around anyone planning a wedding lately, you could just turn on TLC And my wife told me I was going to lose my man card for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you turn on TLC, it's like every show they have on there has to do with weddings. There's Say Yes to the Dress. There's uh, Four Weddings. There's My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding. There's all these shows about weddings. It's a huge deal in our culture. And I remember getting ready as we were planning our own wedding just thinking of the cost of the wedding. The cost was insane. It was so bad, I was like, we're not going to feed people at our wedding. We might, maybe we'll have some cheese and crackers. This is getting insane. And my dad pulled me aside 
And he's like, what are you talking about? You can't take the meal out of the wedding. He's like, think of all the great weddings we've been to. It was always centered around a meal. There was the great ceremony, but then afterwards what you really remember was hanging out with the people at the meal. And so uh, we went ahead and we had a meal, uh, and it was a great, wonderful night. But it was just one night. Weddings in Jesus' time were not just one night. Okay, they, the, the feast that accompanied the wedding ceremony could go on for an entire week. So that is a whole lot of food you need to have. That's a whole lot of accommodations for all your family, though generally they lived closer by. And, as we'll see today, that's a whole lot of drink. Okay, in this case, that's a wine. You need to have a week's worth of wine ready to go for your wedding. Now, wine was drunk almost every day back then, and that's because the water wasn't safe to drink. They didn't have a nice water supply that went and got chlorinated and filtered and all that. So you could actually get really sick if you just drank straight water. So what they would do is they would mix the wine with the water. On a normal day, they would mix it about 20 parts water to one part wine and and water it down. But at a wedding feast, that wasn't the case. You wanted better stuff. So it would be mixed about three parts water, one part wine, so that you had the good stuff for your celebration. Now, when Jesus' mom comes up to him and tells him that they have run out of wine, we have two problems. Number one is that you know, water isn't a viable source to drink here. So we can't just drink water. We have to have wine to drink. And secondly, it reflected poorly on the groom. This whole thing would have taken place on the, at the groom's residence. And it was his job to provide for everybody there. And so this is going to really reflect poorly on him that he doesn't have enough wine for his guests for this week-long feast. So Jesus' mom comes up to him, and notice she doesn't ask him a question kind of in that motherly way. She just makes a statement about something and expects there to be something done about it. She comes up and she tells him that they're out of wine. The first time I ever really remember reading this passage, I was about 15, and Jesus' response really stuck out to me as odd. First of all, he says, woman. He calls his mother a woman, and I'm going, oh my gosh, Jesus, what are you doing here? That's your mom. Like, you can't call her a woman. I don't care how old you are. Uh, But as it turns out, Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother. Certainly in our culture, uh, the the term woman carries this negative connotation when you use it towards someone. I've heard a lot of uh, foolish guys talk about their wives when they've made them mad, saying, oh, that woman, she does this. That woman, she does that. Um, you know, there's the, the joke about, woman, get me in the, in the kitchen and get me a sandwich. You know, so woman in our culture has this negative connotation. Don't impose that on what Jesus is saying here. This is more like him saying, ma'am, okay? There, there's a respect to what he is saying here. He's, but he is doing something. When he calls his mother woman, he's making this separation, Okay, he's saying that I'm not under your authority in this situation. He's making a distinction. He's saying, I'm not your little boy. I'm not doing this because you're, at, you're my mother. He's making a distinction here when he says woman. But then he says to her, what does that have to do with me? For my hour has not yet come. That's also a little bit of a, a strange response, that part. My hour has not yet come. It's a, a line we will see over and over in the Gospel of John. And what Jesus is referring to, and any time you see that in the Gospel of John, 
what he's saying is, it is not yet my time to die for my glory to fully be shown and to rise again to the Father. We see that uh, throughout John and also in John 13. Uh, Jesus realizes, it says, he realized his time had come to leave the earth and to return to the Father. So that's a strange response, it would seem, to Jesus being asked, you know, to take care of a wine shortage. Why is he talking about this? Now, his disciples really at this point didn't have a clue what that would mean. They didn't realize that Jesus was going to be a suffering servant, one who died on a cross for their sins. So I don't think they really get the whole picture that that is going to be uh, what he means here. But nonetheless, that had to be a little bit of a cryptic response to them. What do you mean your time has not yet come, Jesus? I don't want you to think that Jesus is being overdramatic either, though, when he makes that response. Because we've called this series the Defiant Incarnation, and what Jesus did is he defied a lot of what was expected, and he defied a lot of social norms. And what he is getting ready to do when he turns the water into wine in his first miracle here is he is going to do it in a way that is going to defy those social norms. And it's going to ruffle some, it would ruffle some feathers to any religious leader who was there at the time, any of the Pharisees. Had they been there to see what he was going to do and the way in which he does it, they would have been very upset. Nonetheless, the strange response, though, from Jesus doesn't deter his mom. He know, or she knows he can take care of it. And so she goes to the servants in verse 5 and tells them to do whatever it is that Jesus tells them. Picking back up in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the wine now become, or water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. So there's these six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons each, and they're for the Jewish rite of purification. And Mark chapter 7 expands on what this means. They had these jars and they were used. You were supposed to wash your hands. You were supposed to wash any serving utensils. You were supposed to wash any dishes in these. It was a, a, rite, a Jewish rite of purification for eating. Uh, they would even sometimes wash uh, the linens and the couches on which they were going to, to recline and eat that night. And it was a big deal to the Pharisees. In fact, Mark, in Mark 7, Mark's explaining it because the Pharisees have come up to Jesus and their big complaint with him at this point is that his disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. So this is a big deal to the Pharisees. They hold to this very strictly. But it is also a rule that the Pharisees uh, have come up with. Okay? It's a tradition of men. This isn't really something that God has ordained. Now, there's plenty of rules about cleanliness and purification and everything in the Old Testament. But here the Pharisees have gone even on top of that. 
So Jesus has them fill these stone jars that are meant for the rite of purification, that again the Pharisees take very seriously, has them fill that with water, and then he turns that water into wine. Now what Jesus is doing here, again, this is going to upset the Pharisees. They just washed, they were upset that the, the disciples weren't washing their hands. I can only imagine what their response would have been to Jesus using these jars that are supposed to be for purification and turning it into wine. Any Pharisee who had seen this would have started getting mad. The red face would have happened. The vein would have been popping out in their forehead. They're not going to be happy. This is Jesus directly assaulting their way of doing things. Here, that represents the old way. And what Jesus is saying is he is coming in with a new and better way of doing things. He is ushering in the new covenant. He is ushering in the kingdom of God. And he is doing it, again, in a way that's very defiant to what the people of that day would have expected. So again, when he said that uh, his hour had not yet come, and it seems maybe a little overdramatic, Keep in mind that the Pharisees are going to be the guys that he upsets enough that they turn him over to the Romans to be crucified. So he's not being overdramatic, even if it's being a little cryptic, it may seem. So he's turned the water into wine. That's just going to keep going down. Are you all right with that? Uh, (laughs) He turns the water into wine, and it's not just any wine. Okay, this isn't grape juice. This isn't boxed wine. This is the good stuff. This is the stuff where a bottle of it costs more than I make in a month. Okay, he has turned this into the good stuff, and it surprises uh, the head waiter. It surprises the master of the feast. And that also shows that Jesus is taking care of things far beyond anything uh, that would have been imagined. And it leaves the disciples in awe. It says it shows his glory, and what do his disciples do in response to seeing his glory shown in this way? It says they believe. That is their response, is that they believe in Jesus. They believe he is who he says he is. They've already called him in John 1. He's already been called the Son of God. Okay, we saw Nathaniel say that. Uh, So we we already know that they have a belief to, to begin with in the man. Otherwise, they wouldn't have left their lives and followed him. John is making a point here that that caused them to believe again, to believe in a deeper way. That's a beautiful response when you see God's work in your life is a deeper faith, uh, a deeper belief. After this, Jesus and his disciples uh, are going to leave. They go down uh, to Capernaum, and then from Capernaum they actually go to uh, Jerusalem. They stay there a few days. I'm not going to ruin what happens there because Joey's going to be preaching over that over the next few weeks. So let me just sum it up real quick. He ruffles some feathers down there with the Pharisees. Uh, He also gains a lot of followers, but a lot of people are very skeptical and are demanding uh, that he show signs. They want to see signs like this in order to believe and uh, be under his authority. So uh, after he goes to Jerusalem, he's there for the Passover feast, and he comes back up. And that's where uh, he stays a couple days in Samaria, and then continues back up to Galilee. And that's where we'll pick back up in 4.43. John 4.43. After two days, 
he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone down to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now I want to stop there. And so Jesus has had a, um, wasn't nearly as welcomed in Jerusalem as he is up back in Galilee. His fame has spread at this point. Things that he has done, uh, you know, it's smaller towns here, word travels fast in smaller towns. So th- what he has done has spread through and people know who he is now. And that word spreads to this man whose son is sick. So sick that he's to the point of death. And again, back then, you didn't have the Melrose Wakefield Hospital right down the road where you could just rush down there and have things taken care of. The physicians uh, that they did have, uh, anything, any medicine or instruments would have been very crude. And so this isn't something we can just take care of. This is something where the, this man is going to need a miracle. He needs a miracle. And so he hears that Jesus is there in, back in Galilee, and he comes to him, and he is begging him, begging him to come down and save his son. As we go forward from here, I think we can draw a lot of parallels between the first miracle that we read about and this, the second miracle that we're reading about. And the first one is, Jesus gives a, another response that seems a little harsh. He says, unless you people see signs and miracles, you will not believe. Now, the, again, if I, I'm one of Jesus' disciples in my, my sinful, not trusting Jesus way, I would have been like, Jesus, this guy is, is coming to you begging for his son's life. What do you mean he won't believe? Clearly, he already thinks you can do this. Otherwise, he wouldn't have traveled to come see you and beg you to come down and heal his son. Secondly, the response is also very similar. The response of this man is going to be similar to the response of Mary. Mary wasn't thrown off by Jesus' response, and neither is this man. He sticks straight to the point and continuing now in verse 48. It says, uh, or excuse me, 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told them that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So he responds. He still knows. He's not worried about arguing the state of his faith before Jesus. He's not worried about anything else other than his son and that he knows Jesus can take care of his need. And the, the response that he might have taken offense to or could have taken offense to and argued doesn't throw him off. 
he still has faith that Jesus is going to take care of his problem, and he asks him again to come down and heal his son. And again, you see Jesus reward his faith. He heals his son. The man believes him just at Jesus' word. He doesn't run home and then believe. He believes immediately. When Jesus tells him his son is going to live, he believes him. He has faith that Jesus has done what he said he is going to do. When he does make it home the next day, it was a little bit of a trip, his servants rush out to meet him, and they tell him his son has lived. His son is getting better. And when he finds out the time, which was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon the day before, he realizes that that was the time Jesus had said, go, your son will live. And his response is the same as the disciples' response in the first story. The disciples saw his glory, when he, Jesus' glory, when he changed the water into wine, and they believed, and the same thing happens with the man. He sees the glory and the power of Jesus. He knows that there's only one person who could have that power, the power to just speak and see the power of life over death. That power only comes from God. And so he knows who Jesus is now, and he believes in Jesus. Again, isn't that the proper response when we see God's power? Is for us to more fully and deeply have faith in Him? Or, if it's the first time, perhaps, as is the case of this man, he is now truly believing that Jesus is the Son of God who was sent by God to save His people. So, we've now seen two stories where Jesus has come down, where people have asked him to do something, something miraculous, and he has answered their request. And I hope that that encourages us, that we too can come before Jesus, because Jesus, when he died, he didn't stay dead, he rose again. We have a living Savior that we can go to, and we can bring our needs before him and ask him, and he will take care of our needs. Sometimes it is going to be in miraculous ways, in amazing ways. And it should cause us to believe or believe more deeply if we already believe in Him. I don't want you to mishear me this morning and say that uh, you you can just go and ask for anything and if you believe hard enough, you're going to get it. Okay, you, if you're praying for a Mercedes right now, you might keep praying for a Mercedes for the next 50 years, and Jesus is never going to give you a Mercedes. And that's okay, okay, because a Mercedes, i got to be honest with you, isn't really a need. Okay, you don't have to have a Mercedes Benz in this life. Your life will be okay without it. And also, when you're praying, I don't want you to get discouraged when what you're praying for and what you need doesn't materialize right away. Because sometimes the response we get, like the response that we have seen, isn't exactly what we're expecting right away. And maybe we're expecting for there to be money in the mailbox the next morning and it doesn't show up. Or maybe we're expecting for us, our health problems to just go away the, the next morning after we've prayed. And that doesn't always work out. Sometimes we don't get the response we're looking for. But don't give up in your prayers for those things. Because Jesus is going to answer them. He rewards those who seek Him in faith. 
Lastly, though, uh, while that is great and that is true, and he certainly does reward those who seek him in faith, I don't want us to miss the big picture here. If you look through these two passages we just read, John never once calls them miracles. He never says this was the first miracle and this was the second miracle. He calls them signs. Because that's what they are. These aren't miracles for miracles' sake. These aren't miracles uh, solely for the benefit of the person who is on the receiving end of it. These are signs that are pointing us, pointing them, pointing anybody who sees them to who Jesus truly is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one who came down to die for our sins and rise again. All right, so you would not get on 95, which turns into 128 here, and head out on 128 north. And at the first green sign that said Singing Beach, everybody would stop, get out, and take pictures next to the sign that said Singing Beach, be all happy, then turn around and go home and went, oh yeah, I made it to Singing Beach. No, because that's just a sign. That green sign is just that. It is pointing you to the destination. And if you stop at the sign, you never reach that destination. So do not stop looking. When you see a miracle, don't stop there and worship the miracle and be satisfied with that. When you have an answered prayer, don't stop at the answered prayer and be satisfied with that. They are all pointing you to Jesus. And we all have to arrive at that destination. Because if we don't, then we're in trouble. We are all sinners. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the destination. Everything else are signs pointing us to that. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Son Jesus. We thank You that You sent Him down to die on the cross for our sins. Lord God, we thank You that You hear our prayers, that You answer our prayers, and that You take care of us even if sometimes we don't see how it's going to be uh, right away, you do come through in the end. And I've seen that in my life and so many other lives in here. Thank you for that, God. Lord, I, I pray for anybody in here who does not know your Son, who has not placed their faith in Jesus, that they would be led to that today, that they would hear that call and come to faith in Him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.